Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for the lovely introduction, Pastor John. I appreciate it. Well, if you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gavin. I'm usually the children's pastor here, and I'm filling in today. It's July 4th weekend. I think we all enjoy the 4th. It's a nice time to get out. If you have a boat, you're usually on one. Uh, my wife and I, we used to live on the parade route. So after church, the goal was to get there as quick as possible, or else it would take us 30 minutes to an hour just to get into our house. And we'd always have a bunch of people right in front of our, our house, you know, in chairs and stuff. So one year I thought it'd be pretty funny to put a bunch of no trespassings or whatever sign I could find in town. And I put, I think, 30 signs. One of them said, beware of my chihuahua. <laughs> and just any sign I could think of all throughout town. And then I get home from church, and there is no one in front of my house, nor the neighbor's houses. And I'm like, Why? I don't think they were that far. And then, uh, so we're sitting there, only ones within 100 feet each way. And someone walks by, and I hear someone say, oh, I can't believe they have a no smoking sign there. I'm like, that was the one that, <laughs> not speed limit enforced by radar or centuries, nothing like that, but the smoking one. So... Well, signs work, I guess. I don't know. But today I want to open with a little bit of a story about a musician. This musician was a very great at piano. He's a pianist. And he had a friend who ran a, a funeral parlor, and he asked him, Hey, there's this funeral going on. The guy is a veteran, doesn't have much family around, no many friends. Would you mind coming to the funeral and playing a song for him? And he goes, Of course. So the day comes, it's a drive, the funeral, the uh, graveside somewhere out where he doesn't very, know very well, and he gets lost, and it takes him far too long past the time the funeral would have happened, and he finally finds the place, shows up, and everybody is gone except for the two workers who are cleaning up at the end. He looks there, and the whole thing is over, the situation is done with him. He's like, well, I feel bad, the guy's already buried, but I still feel like I need to do something. So he gets out his piano, and he gets out his little sound system. The two workers come over and watch, like, what is this guy doing? He says, sorry for late, and he just starts playing Amazing Grace the best he can. It's a beautiful moment. He starts to cry. The workers start to cry, and it's just a lovely moment. Once the song's over and everyone's just filled with all this emotion, the guy said, that was awesome. He says, thank you. He packs up and leaves. And as the two guys are standing there, one of them looks at the other, have you ever seen anything like that? And he goes, no, not in my 20 years of putting in septic tanks. I've never seen anything so beautiful before. And the point of that is we all grieve differently. <laughs> I could imagine if, uh, the, if you're watching online and that's a moment of buffers or your internet cuts out and like, what'd you learn? We grieve over septic tanks, okay. And we all deal with that, those strife moments a little bit differently as well. Uh, I had two family members, or a bunch of family members, but two I can think of where they were raised in the church, and they were taught certain things. They were taught how to raise the right way, the way that God wanted them to, and then they would see their parents do the exact opposite. So they would get stuck, and then the only conclusion they had, and they came up with different answers, was one of them drew the conclusion that, well, clearly everything that they're teaching is fake, and the other one drew the conclusion that everything they taught it was human error and not God's error. So how we deal with those stressful situations in life also differs. And this is also the case for Jeremiah in Lamentations. I'm going to give a quick overview from my last sermon and continue on where we are, for where we are to this point. And 
for the longest time, the southern kingdom of Judah and the Israelites, they've fallen away from God. They sent multiple prophets. God did and prophesied, change your ways or else, change your way for else. Jeremiah was this the case, and they didn't listen. And eventually, God's wrath and judgment came down upon them. And it is at this point where Jeremiah is sitting just outside the west gate, and he's in a cave, which is known today as Jeremiah's Cave. He can see the west gate or the Damascus gate. He can also see... Uh, Galgatha, which is a hill that Jesus was crucified on. He didn't know that yet, but it's there. It's also only eight miles from the nearest KFC, I learned. Uh, they have good reviews. I may have had that this week with the in-laws. I'm not saying I did, but... And during that time, he was lamenting over the fall of the kingdom of Judah, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Holy Temple, and also the Babylonian captivity that had started and would last another 70 years. And the way he tried to deal with this a little bit in these laments, besides to weep and to cry in these words and getting out that emotion, is he wrote what's called acrostic poems or alphabetic poems. And these alphabetic poems are start with one letter of the beginning letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So they're 22 lines long. They start, and then if they get longer, they start over. And it's a way to create order from chaos or a way, a poetic way to help oneself say, calm down by organized and structure what can't be organized. And the whole book, and the whole chapter is breaking down. You have summary, you have details, you have the main point, then you have summary and details again. And today I'm going to focus on chapter three, specifically, which is the heart of the entire book. Chapter one was written from the perspective of Lady Liberty, or not Lady Liberty, Lady Zion, our version of Lady Liberty as the city of Jerusalem itself, Chapter 2 were the details and the more specific events of what happened, the more circumstances. And the purpose of chapter 3 and for all of Lamentation is hope. And there are four key changes of the writing from Jeremiah compared to the first two. The first one is poem length. The first two chapters are 22 verses, and the third one is 66. So he had enough to say to triple up on his poem style three times, which is a lot to start the alphabet over again, so I'm glad I don't try that in English because that would be very difficult and a lot of time for me to think of a few of those letters. The second big change is point of view. The first two chapters he wrote from, he's weeping from the perspective of for the city itself that destroyed or for the people of Jerusalem and the Israelites themselves. And chapter three isn't about that. It's about his point of view and his struggles personally. And it does also show Jeremiah's character where he put others before himself, that godly care about others, put yourself last, the character you want to see in an individual. So he finally gets around to put his emotions to pen as well, or I guess to quill. And when he does that, you see another key change is he's currently struggling in his faith. He's currently struggling in his walk with all the trials and tribulations and everything that's going around him it's just not easy for him at that time. There's a lot he is going through. And you'll see this a lot through verses 3 through 17 because he's not writing to, he's writing to God directly or saying what God's doing, but for chapters 1 and 2, it was, it immediately went to the Lord did this or the Lord did that. But in chapter 3, it's more distant. It's, it's a pro, he uses a pronoun like he did this, he did that. He's not being disrespectful, but he's showing that strife and that relationship, that struggle that we have, being close to God at times. And Jeremiah here, he's broken. 
And what I mean is broken. He's struggling for everything he's gone through. He's hurt. He's distant. There's nothing really going right. He feels all is it over. And you can see that real clearly in verse 4 through 6. I'll read it here. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me. With bitterness and tribulation, he has made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. So he's wasting away, physically broken, emotionally broken, completely covered in bitterness, and there is nothing going right in his life. And to sum it up quickly, I would say, he's not doing well. I mean, that's kind of obvious with everything he's writing, but it's true. He, his relationship with the people is that's right. He gets, he's been turned down by men, cast away. He gets stoned. They throw things at him. They're angry. He gets rejected by the city itself that's destroyed, which is supposed to be the city on the hill, that light. That's no longer there. And he feels distant from God. And in verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. He's depressed. He's shell-shocked. I don't know if you've ever forgotten what happiness is, but that's pretty a bad situation in life to be from where you can't remember, well, what's good? What good feels like? What a good day is? What hot dogs on the 4th of July is? And moments when you're separated to God, they hurt, such as verse 18. So my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. So he is so far away from God right now and so hurting in life that almost as if his hope was gone is when he just thinks about it. And it's at this moment, I know what you're thinking, like how is this about hope? He just said he had none. But there's also a moment of clarity there for him where he almost just sits there and sighs for a second. Like the writing changes a little bit. Not a lot, just a little bit for the next two verses where you see, okay, he's reevaluating a little bit. Remember my affliction, my wandering. This is verse 19 and 20. My wormwood and gall, my soul continually remembers it and bowed down within me. And you start to see a little bit of his change in heart. But I, if I was writing this, and I always wondered if this is a moment where he just puts his writing utensil down at the moment and just thinks, is this, I just need to take a deep breath here and think about how I feel in these sayings. And he's reevaluating almost. And then out of all this, you see a change in him, a change in his moment. And this is the big change that you see here more than anything. And this is the fourth key change, and that change is hope. Verse 21 makes it clear. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And that seems a little bit contradictory or paradoxical, doesn't it? When there is no hope, he has hope. You feel like, Okay, everything logical, if I look to it, there's nothing around to be hopeful about. Why is he hopeful? Have you ever met one of those people where everyone else is having a bad day and they come in and they're just smiling? It's like, well, it couldn't be worse. I'm not saying I do that at times, but it can be a little bit of, it gets under people's skin sometimes, doesn't it? It's like, why are you hopeful in a hopeless environment? I see some people smiling like, yeah, you're that way. I can't stand you. No, it's okay. I get it. But he found hope. And it's clear in verses 22 through 26. The steadfast, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is, a good, the Lord is good to those who wait on him. So is the soul who seeks him. It is good one should wait quietly and for salvation of the Lord. So all of a sudden, that moment of clarity, is it's there for him. Now, I don't know if it was, that was the intention of this writing, to show all the afflictions, say, but I have hope anyway, or if it was more of a moment of clarity in that specific moment, that revelation himself, like, in spite of all this, okay, remember what I have, remember who God is. And this line of wait quietly, it happens several times through the Old Testament. It's more than once. And that line is from a few times in Psalms. The one that sticks up to me is Psalms 37, 7, which is be still before the Lord and wait quietly. And this idea of waiting quietly through every bad thing or a hell on earth seems a little bit difficult at times, doesn't it? Difficult for me at times when you're struggling. You're like, okay, just wait. I'm not always patient, especially when I don't know what's coming next. If I know the direction, I'm a little bit better. But if I... Just those moments in self are very, very difficult. Where am I? There you go. And it's a powerful statement to wait quietly, especially in the book of Lamentations, when the whole book kind of has this negative connotation to it of all the bad things around it. And out of all that, you're still waiting quietly for hope and for the positive things that God can only bring. And for Jeremiah's case, when the whole world is around him, when if you think about it, he's circling the drain where everything's collapsing on him. He's standing in drain. And at the bottom of that drain, he doesn't find what you'd think you would find. He doesn't find a, a pipe leading to a water treatment facility or worse yet, a septic tank. But he finds deliverance. He finds hope. He finds joy. He finds that peace, that hope that doesn't make sense, a hope that can come from only the one on the most high. And in verse, a hope for the Lord. And Jeremiah knew that. In verse 31 and 32, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So through all that he's going through, and he knows even when he, on some level, he thinks about it on his own and forgets what's going on. He just gets frustrated and he gets this negative downward spiral and it gets worse and worse. But he also knows at the end of the day anyways, there is hope and there will be salvation and there will be deliverance from all the things that we go through here on earth. No matter how bad that situation is. And if you look at it, it's not really getting better for him right away. And for the rest of his life here on earth, it doesn't. Judah was still conquered. Babylon captivity lasts for 70 years, multiple generations. The kids of that generation won't see Israel again, won't see the city of Jerusalem again. You also, he will never see it. There's a time in his life where he flees to Egypt, and that's where his life eventually ends. So there isn't, his hope there on earth is kind of weary, and he doesn't have it if he just looks at ourselves or looks at himself and sees all the faults and issues and he understands God's judgment he's not against it and he understands that it's not just his fault but the fault of everyone there and he never excludes himself from being a part of that problem but there is still hope 
And he does reflect on it, which is the name of my sermon series, Reflect in Revelation. And he even says in a verse 40 there, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. So he even tells us, hey, look at our own lives. What's going on? Why do things hurt? And through all this that's going on, these hurt things, there is hope at the end of the day for them. It's not over with, I know Yogi Berra always says, and they don't over till it's over. Well, when you follow the Lord, that hope never goes away and it's never over. There's always some, the only over is when we are with God. And when we make it to salvation, when we are deliverance from here. And perhaps maybe just like Jeremiah had that revelation of sin, that revelation of this is our fault, but you're still struggling with something. Uh, the world around you is sinking. There's sinking sand. The interesting part about when you sink or when someone's drowning is they're always reaching up, but at the bottom of that, there's always a solid ground to stand on or the cornerstone of a foundation, and that cornerstone will, is God and will always be God. And that's the hope that Jeremiah is talking about. It's not individual hope. It's not hope in that people will just figure it out by themselves or that that problem will end. The hope is that he knows one day that God will end it and that God will heal all these trials that they go through. And when you put hope in him and that confidence in him and that in his spirit, that it's not going to be there forever because one day we'll be with God again and all that's gone. And I really try to think about the perfect line, that perfect little quip to get, you, get with that you want to end with, that solid little final statement. But I couldn't think of anything myself. I thought a better one was what Jeremiah had already wrote. So I'm going to read verses 55 through 58, and I think he summed it up better than I could. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came here when I called you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we call on your name, O Lord. From wherever we are in life, from the dips of any trial and tribulation, and we know you hear our plea. You hear our cries, O God, of all the problems we have, from the big ones to the little ones. And we know even if those issues today won't be solved, that we know there's a light at the end, God that the darkest is gone once that you deliver us from it, God. And we have hope, God. We have faith, God. We have joy, God, that as long as we believe in you and believe in your son that he died on the cross for us, God, that one day that you will redeem us and that salvation will be there, God. Thank you for everything, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand?